At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Podcast. I am Dr. Michael Ray, a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I also work remotely with the Barbell Medicine Company for the Pain and Rehab Division. Joined by my two usual co-hosts, Dr. Derek Miles and Dr. Michael Amato. How's it going, guys? How's it going, Mike? Doing well, Mike. Yeah. I, every time I hear that, it's just like the Mike and Mike show plus this guy, Derek. <laughs> We always start off by like kicking Derek, and I don't know how long I don't know how long that'll last. <laughs> you know, it's it goes with my uh, West Virginia roots. It's just got to start out out of the gate a little bit behind. So, uh, but I mean, I also get to reduce you guys into Mike squared. So that's true. <laughs> yeah, we're just one amorphous thing now. Yeah. Well, uh, for the longest time, people mixed up Derek and I. Like, con- I just, probably still happens today. I just notice it less. But they'll like, they'll be like, "Yeah, Derek said this." And I'm like, "Actually, I think I said that." Or they'll be like, "Yeah, Mike said that." And Derek will be like, "Yeah, actually, I think that's happened so many times. I've lost count." Well, yeah, you you got an email yeah. directed at, at me to you the other day, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. that's a good. Yeah, so we just we're all interchangeable at this point, I think. Yeah, the self is an illusion. Right. Oh gosh, Derek's gonna like leave the yeah. I'm not gonna go to <laughs> Yeah, time to get started on resistance training. Yes, so we're gonna talk about something that uh, is very popular amongst our usual audience with barbell medicine. It's something we're obviously very passionate about, hence the name barbell medicine. Uh, so we're gonna talk about resistance training today. Just for reference, the primary article we're going over is the benefits of strength training and musculoskeletal system health. Practical Applications for Interdisciplinary Care. Um, and I think it's a great article. Read through it this past week. A lot of positives. So I strongly encourage, especially if you're a healthcare professional, to go read this. But that's how we're going to frame up the discussion today. And so we're just going to start off by talking about, you know, why are we having this conversation? And so kind of the scope of the issue here is there's a lot of, um, you know, we're going to silo this a bit to the U.S., but I'm sure Derek can talk more about global issues with this. But in the U.S., for sure, there's a lack of engagement in physical activity. Now, most of our conversation today will be focused on the resistance training aspect of the National Physical Activity Guidelines, because we know overall that about 20% of Americans aren't engaging in both cardiorespiratory recommendations as well as resistance training recommendations. 
And so today's kind of discussion is like, here's this major issue that we're having at the adult level. And then why should we as healthcare professionals and then you as a, the general population member be engaging in resistance training and us advocating for it? Derek, I know that uh, we're talking about at the adult level that the, these numbers aren't great. What does it look like at the kind of adolescent child uh, level? Um, we're doing a, an abysmal job of really advocating for physical activity. And I think there's a, obviously a lot of layers to it, but depending on the research you look at, best case scenario, half of kids are meeting physical activity recommendations of 60 minutes a day of moderate level physical activity. Um, most of the papers tend to put that number closer between 15 and 22%. And it just shows how in, I'm kind of remiss to use the word sedentary that we've become as a society, but it is really the fitting side of it because a lot of what we've done now has become so structured in our prescription of activity or even our participation in activity now that we forget about the benefits of things like free play that really should be one of the integral parts of you know childhood. And it's not necessarily we need to take a eight-year-old and say we're going to do three sets of eight at RPE eight, but you know, hey, help me go drag this pallet from point A to point B. That that certainly counts. Yeah, and so some of it's just like go outside and play with your friends and form social bonds and enjoy physical activity. Yeah, and you know, I think we would be remiss not to just at least touch on some of the issues that we have with over sports specialization and even like the sterility of sport at this point to where the more structure you make everything, the less creativity that there really is involved in it. And when it comes to even resistance training, a lot of times we think about that in terms of some type of iron supplement. And we, we forget that doing things around the yard, carrying sticks, you know, digging a hole, there is some external load coming through those activities. Yeah, I think um, something that comes up a lot of barbell medicine is this idea of variety and training. And, and even I think you could take like, I know you and I have previously talked about like the long-term athletic development model. And I know you've written on this at the barbell medicine side as well, but you could take those principles and apply variety at the adult level too, which I think a lot of people miss out on. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts about that? You know, off uh, recording, you and I had had a conversation the other day regarding the or my interest in seeing people's Google Maps and how much they deviate from the same pattern over and over again and how good it can be to deviate from that. You know, you may discover a new restaurant or you may discover a new store. Who knows? You might meet a neighbor or, you know, someone new whose presence you enjoy. And the same thing can be said for physical activity in that, like, if we do the same thing over and over and over and over again, like, that's awesome. We can progress at it. But adding in a little bit of variety tends to really be beneficial for some outside perspective on the thing we're currently doing. Yeah, there's that like there was like a shift, I would say, over the last like 10 to 15 years where it's like, are you exercising or are you training? And then like it was almost like mm -hmm. vilified that like, oh, you can't just like do random stuff like you have to train and you have to like progress. And obviously there's a lot of benefit in repeating similar routines and movements and, you know, modes of exercise so that you can actually increase dosage over time. But, you know, there's also a lot of benefit in like what you said, trying new things, varying routines, and just being a little bit like more adaptable to 
when you know shit hits the fan like like now you know like yeah. with, gym, with gyms being very hard to access um and public space being hard to access like how can you then adapt to that new situation when you can't do what you were used to doing um so regimentally believe it or not there is more to life than squat bench and deadlift and i think sometimes we forget that and athletes become so focused on these very few movements that they neglect to see that there are other ways with which to train to be active and even to be social because you know if we're getting to the point where you're not an elite level athlete and that's not really your goal but you're missing out on some social situations because you feel like you are obligated to do this one thing that that can be, or that can create some problems in and of itself. Yeah. And I think like uh, a good point to make here is like actually just reading the resistance training guidelines. So people see, cause there's a lot of claims on the internet world. Like you got to do this mode of exercise and it is all about powerlifting or it's all about weightlifting or it's all about CrossFit. And the reality of the situation is, is these guidelines are quite generic and broad purposefully because it's about you finding activities you enjoy that you want to engage in and it will keep up adherence long term, which is ultimately what matters to us. The One of the major take home points from this discussion that will come out of it today is loading across the lifespan means a lot to us. In fact, when Derek and I started teaching seminars a few years back, we had a lecture that Derek taught specifically geared towards loading across the lifespan. And, and that's for a purposeful reason. So uh, I'll go over the adult guidelines and then, uh, Derek, if you want to cover uh, for a child adolescent. But for adults, it literally just says muscle strengthening activities of moderate or greater intensity and involve all major muscle groups on two or more days a week as, they, as these activities provided additional health benefits. And we only have 23.2% of people doing both cardiorespiratory and muscle strengthening activities uh, in America. How does that differ for children, how do the recommendations change, Derek? So they more broad frame it into bone strengthening. And once again, these are the American guidelines. There is some heterogeneity in the phrasing across yeah. the or across the world. Um, they so what they recommend is 60 minutes or more of daily physical activity that should include bone strengthening activity on at least three days a week. And by that, we do have some research that Certain sports, um, such as early specialization into running or swimming in particular, does tend to or does appear to have some kind of detrimental long term effects on bone health that can be offset with some resistance training. But even that was mitigated compared to athletes participating in multidirectional sports like soccer or, or things where you had to cut, plant, jump. And I know for like, because you've already said like we're not doing very well at the child adolescent level and we already know we're not doing very well at the adult level. And I know at the adult level, I was looking at kind of CDC data on this this past week and saw a pretty significant drop in engagement and resistance training after the ages of 18 to 24. So, you know, just to reiterate, we're advocating for resistance training throughout life, starting in childhood adolescence, which... Derek, is there a particular age that you would say, yes, this is the time point? Because I know we're going to get this question that kids just start engaging in resistance training. 
it's not necessarily there's a particular age and some of it is contingent on the focus. It, it is much more based on uh, maturity level. And even at the young, what we would call like the learning to train or the fundamentals aspect. So you're talking like elementary to early middle school ages, you can work technique. And there it is much more about, you know, the, the neuromuscular control side of things and grooving that technique. And then once you start hitting puberty, that's really when the hormonal changes kick in that allow a lot of the what we consider like traditional adaptations to resistance training. And at that point, like you're perfectly fine. If we're talking about progressing load as a general rule by middle school for the average athlete, you should be perfectly fine to start some progressive resistance training. Okay. So that's good. And obviously if, if folks have like more questions on this, cause I, I don't want to steer too far away from our goal for today. Derek has a whole series on, on uh, this discussion. What's the name of the series, Derek? Um, it's resistance training for the youth athlete. There you go. So be sure to check that out on our website as well at barbellmedicine.com. Um, but you're going to see this discussion continue on. Like, I think this paper was great for talking about clinical aspects of why we should be promoting resistance training as healthcare professionals. And we'll get to those here in a minute. But I think it's very important for the audience to know that we're advocating for resistance training throughout life. And it's, it's before you even end up in a situation where you're seeking out, whether us in our clinics or seeking out consultation remotely with us. We wanted people to be engaging in this. And then there's obviously going to be some clinical benefits that we'll talk about here shortly. Now, the authors go into some risks uh, that we have evidence to say there are risks to lack of physical activity engagement. And these are going to be you know, probably common things for our audience, such as type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, colon cancer, postmenopausal breast cancer, dementia, and depression as risk factors for these issues, just simply due to, uh, as one variable, there's obviously probably other influential variables, but one being the lack of physical activity. Derek, you put in here uh, a JAMA article that I, I got the chance to read through recently that I thought was really good, but is there anything you want to say about kind of the panacea that, uh, of promoting physical activities that came out of this article? Yeah, there was an article that came out in April in JAMA by Nyberg et al., and it was titled Association of Healthy Lifestyle with Years Lived Without Major Chronic Diseases. And it shows just how easy, and, and I use that from a conversational point, not an actionable point, because we're obviously not doing well with it, um, staving off chronic disease is. You know, we have these multi-million dollar supplement markets and God knows how much the fitness industry is raking in with weird claims. But what this paper found was individuals who had a lower BMI, and, and I understand some of the caveats that go with the BMI discussion, but BMI less than 25, um, they did not smoke. They had moderate alcohol intake, which was up to 21 drinks a week by their standard, and then met physical activity guidelines, staved off chronic disease on average by a decade. So when you're talking about like the whole years lived versus like what you can do with those years. One of the best ways you can stay active and stay healthy as you age is by staying physically active. Yeah. Just to reiterate, that was like 10 years of uh, staving off chronic disease development. And then those were just things like uh, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes. Uh, what were the other, do you recall the other things that they were discussing? 
it was type 2 diabetes, coronary heart disease, stroke, cancer, asthma, and COPD. Yeah. So, you know, and these are, to, to what Derek's saying, just very simple things that we can implement into our daily living that's going to have huge return on investment down the road for us. Uh, I think I recall from this paper, they were specifically looking at the age of 40 to 75 for the included population. So, and that's when the rationale was because that's when you usually start, you know, going for consultations related to like cardiovascular disease and stuff. So huge ROI, if we can get people starting young and then do this stuff throughout life, you know, we're going to have some, there's not many things in the world, I think that we can say, especially as healthcare professionals, like, Hey, if you do these three weird tricks of like, you know, involving physical activity, that's going to lead to some major returns on investment versus like, can I go buy this supplement or do, you know, some other crazy intervention? Yeah. And so much of that is like quality of life, you know, like not, we're not just talking about like years living longer, but like, what are you doing during those years and not dealing with COPD, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, you know, frailty, risk of falling, like it, it, it just ends up like you wish you could intervene earlier when you see people at that stage. Um, and knowing that we can do that is like the hard part because it's like yelling at us in our face, but like actually implementing it and putting it on a wide population, uh, basis is the tricky, tricky part. When this kind of gets at what resistance training actually is, because, you know, we've already used the example or I've used the example in particular of, you know, using a shovel or, you know, just even doing some light work around the house. And that's phenomenal to a point. But really, if we want to continue to reap the benefits out of it, it does have to get progressively harder over time. It's just like learning any skill to where if something is consistently easy, odds are you're not necessarily adapting to it. So I think this leads well into our mechanotransduction discussion, which may sound like this large fancy word, but it's it's not really. Um, but I bring this up mainly because there's also some interesting passive modalities that we don't have to get into that operate under this idea of mechanotransduction. But the, um, Derek or Amato, do you guys want to kind of define this word for our audience and how it's applicable to resistance training? Basically is how an external force is applied to a system and the interpretation of that force by the system into different variables. And in this case, in layman's terms, it is if we put an external load through the system, your body is going to do something with said external load. And this often gets reduced into things like if I lay my hands on someone and apply 6.25 pounds of tensile force, then I can change tissue structure. And, and that's just bunk. Um, even for somebody who's severely undertrained, if that were the case, then, you know, carrying in my 20 pound bag of groceries shouldn't cause things to tear apart. And the mechanotransduction argument often gets over extrapolated into modalities of different sorts having some type of long-term effect on the body. But even when it comes to things like resistance training, you know, I don't think anyone here would even concede that one squat session is going to have a super long-term effect on anything going on with you physiologically. And it's the same thing. It's just scaled down to much, 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 much lighter loads when we're talking about the implementation of these modalities. Yeah, it's, it's, 
the passive modalities discussion aside, mechanical transduction is a cool idea because it's basically like, oh, I apply this external load to you and the body has this great way of adapting like through a series of cellular responses and physiological responses. And then to what Derek's saying is that means at some point I've got to up the dose, so to speak, and get a physiological response again. Whereas if I just did the same thing over and over again, at some point you're just going to level off and not have a return on investments. Um, so that's a whole you know principle of progressive overload. Amado, do you have anything to add to that? No, yeah. I mean, the paper kind of gets a little bit into um, like allostatic loading and without going into the weeds on that, it's like if you want your body to continue to adapt, it needs to kind of like chase like a new prediction essentially. So if you're increasing dosage or in, uh, implementing variability into your routine, essentially what you're doing is like you're making sure the system continues to push forward because it'll lock in onto what is like the most predicted expectation. And so if you're doing similar routines or you're kind of settling into, you know, your average lifestyle, which is might not be a bad thing, but essentially you won't get that progression because then the body just knows like this is the most predicted expectation. So we'll stay here. There's no reason to add muscle mass or increase bone density or whatever, or increase mitochondria in the cell, like whatever adaptation is occurring um, because then that's just like wasted resources for the body. I, I think this gets into the combination of the discussion regarding variability and intensity. And the authors of this paper, I think, do a really good job of talking about how we tend to talk about resistance training in this very ether fashion. And we forget that in order for it to be resistance, like there has to be some intensity attached to it. If we don't know how hard something is, then we can't say that there's an adaptation. And if you look at the most recent position statements on resistance training for healthy adults, uh, healthy or the older adults recommends at least 50% of one RM. And uh, the kids actually recommends even a higher percentage of one RM. Now, of course, authors in both instances are going to go back and be like, you know, we don't inherently need to one RM someone. We can use things like auto regulation in the form of RPE or reps and reserve in order to let people figure out really what hard is. But if we're not accounting for that intensity in our training, we're missing a huge piece of any type of prescriptive program. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to definitely go over, because I think that's a huge, uh, important topic. We'll go over practical applications of this discussion. So I don't want us to leave people with no way of thinking like, well, now what I know I should do resistance training, but how should I go about this? So we will definitely get there. I think this tees up pretty well, like what are the clinical relevancy or what is the clinical relevancy for resistance training? Uh, why we should be advocating for it as healthcare professionals. So they focus on four kind of primary areas and, and we've done either podcasts or written articles on this stuff previously. And I encourage the audience to go check out uh, several of these topics where we've talked about them in previous uh, podcasts and articles. But the four main ones are cartilage health, bone health, muscle health, and tendon health. Um, and just to kind of, we're going to go through each of these just briefly and talk about kind of the highlights. I know with cartilage health, kind of the big one that they discuss is osteoarthritis. So what were you guys' thoughts as far as like clinical relevance for resistance training as it relates to this? I know we just did a podcast on this, so just brief highlights. Yeah, it's very similar to like the 
obviously the last last podcast we did plus um we just published a new article on the website um that uh, charlie and austin wrote and uh but we were having this discussion right before we went on and how you know in the past it was thought that arthritis couldn't change in a positive uh fashion and that increased loading and wear and tear are narratives that you know accelerate the process of osteoarthritis so a large part of this paper goes into the benefits of resistance training and how that can improve either the actual thickness of the cartilage which can be a little bit um controversial because the research isn't that sound on it but then more so like function so having stronger thigh muscles or um stronger quad strength essentially can improve function and pain and this is all stuff we talked about um in our previous episode i think the big take home out of a lot of this really is this movement against the body as a machine because if you look in a lot of these instances it's well you know things have wear and tear we'll replace the part or we'll give it a new paint job and that's not what the research really says on this you, you don't need a new paint job it's a you're a perfectly fine person and you will adapt to whatever is being exposed to you. But it is facilitating that adaptation belief over the, we just need to change things out at our earliest convenience. Yeah, like I completely agree. And we, and we talked a lot about that on our osteoarthritis podcast. So if you want to go down that rabbit hole a little bit more, I encourage you to go check out that podcast. Also read up on the article that Dr. Brocky and Dr. Dixon just released on Barbell Medicine's website as well as the Barbell Medicine Guide to Osteoarthritis. The next thing that they bring up is bone health, which specifically is going to be related to things like osteopenia and osteoporosis, as well as fractures. So if you guys would like to talk a little bit more on that, I know there's a couple of trials that are all uh, all of us seem to like, like the Lift More trial that discusses this stuff more. Well, we've had increasing evidence over the prior decade now showing that it is perfectly safe to load older individuals. And in fact, it's not only safe, it's beneficial. The, the Lift More trial is definitely one of the more classic ones where they had older osteopenic females originally and now males because they've replicated it, um, performing what we would consider a, a traditional strengthening program. In fact, they were even having them do some landing drills out of it. And what they showed was participating in this program did increase bone health. But the other big take home out of it is the original trial, I believe, was five or six years ago now, but they've continued having these individuals train and they've continued to reap more benefits out of it. And this also gets into some of the dosing conversation across the board to once again, like one squat session does not make you resistance trained. If you want the benefits out of physical activity, it needs to be a consistent behavior, not something that you do for a little while and then walk away from and never do again. Yeah, that's my biggest argument with uh, rehab clinicians uh, that we've talked about previously is if you intervene for six to 12 weeks and you don't get long term, you know, behavioral change and adherence, the second they walk out and stop doing whatever it is you intervened with during rehab, then you're going to lose those adaptations. So uh, it's something that we have to focus on. How do we elicit long term adherence in, in these activities? No, what I like too about the Liftmore trial, which Derek mentioned, um, with like the drop landings and stuff, it like takes away that like 
you know, something that seemed like 15 or 20 years ago, like you were saying earlier, like you would never have someone do like you, if they were osteoporotic, you would never have them like jump and land. But actually like the higher rate of force seems to be more bone, um, uh, like formative. So like it, you might actually need to do more plyometric training, uh, with some of these individuals. So it's just kind of cool to see that like, not only is it safe, but we should be doing it and we should be progressing it. Yeah. It's awesome to see like where we're, where we've moved away from prior thinking in, in this regard, as far as like, Oh, you know, you're 75, there's nothing wrong with having you, you know, go start picking things up off of the ground and putting them back down and then progressively overloading that. Whereas I think, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that was quite questionable. Yeah, we've definitely seen a transition um, from that. And even when we start talking about, you know, when I was in school back in the dark ages, we were really just starting to get into that good old neuroplasticity word that is kind of went to pasture. But we were taught, you know, just don't heal. Um, And once you've had some type of damage, it's always going to be there. But what it really has shown in the past and during the course of my career is it's probably because we were overly protective of a lot of these individuals. And there is a lot of conversation now between protect and expose. And it seems like the more we start exposing individuals to stress in a manner with which they can handle, the more things that we thought didn't heal do start having more progressive like changes in a more idealistic manner. And it it really does show that at times we may have been our own worst enemy because you know, our, our edict is always do no harm, but if you're doing nothing to someone, odds are you're harming them. Yeah. I think the big takeaway from this is, you know, we need to get people, uh, especially in this regard, A, they should be doing this throughout life, as we've said a few times, but B, especially as when we're getting into, you know, uh, listing someone as having osteopenia or osteoporosis, intervening with, you know, Iron supplement via external resistance is perfectly acceptable. And in fact, we're going to see some good return on investment with bone mineral density, as well as a potential reduction in, in fractures in the future. Um, the paper goes into stress fractures a little bit as well, which I think is um, a bit nuanced overall. But Derek, because I know this gets into some stuff we've talked about previously, uh, as far as like in the adolescent period with stress fractures as well. But do you guys want to kind of whoever wants to define stress fracture, and then maybe we can briefly touch on kind of the nuance of this, this idea. Well, even the definition of it gets a, a little tricky at times because it, it really does come off of a radio or radiographic reading. And if you look at what gets called a stress fracture, sometimes it starts getting a discussion of is a stress reaction and, and things get cloudy fast. And, and by all of that, what you'll start seeing is, decreased bone mineral density showing up on x-ray and it's at what point are we going to call it problematic and it's often correlated very directly with symptoms now once again if you look at the evidence on this you'll see lower bone mineral density on average in a lot of these or a lot of endurance athletes and, and these this tends to be the population where we see this the most anyway um so it doesn't necessarily 
it's not as clear cut as people would like to think it is. But once again, to go back to the resistance training side of it, there is a a phenomenal study by Duplanty et al. that looked at resistance trained runners versus non-resistance trained runners and untrained peers. And they found that, weirdly enough, individuals who participate in resistance training had greater bone mineral density than both the Un, or non-resistance trained and untrained. And the difference was not modulated by a, bio, or a biomarker that contributed bone formation or resorption. So it really does come down to, and, and they use the phrase, which is glorious, habitual load-bearing exercise using external resistance. So yeah. the habitual being the really operative word out of that. Mm-hmm. So I think that covers bone health pretty well. Next up is tendon. Now, obviously, we've done a tendinopathy podcast that I highly encourage folks to go listen to. We're also going to be releasing, similar to the guide to osteoarthritis, we're going to release a guide to tendinopathy as well here soon. Uh, So look for that shortly. But is there anything you guys would like to say, just kind of like broad general statements as it relates to tendinopathies and then tendon health uh, with resistance training? I think when you're really talking about tendon adaptation, the easiest thing is to just go to the Mersman paper where the recommendation from the systematic review of meta-analysis is on greater than 80% 1RM for activity. And it does once again, and once again, there are layers of nuance to this, but the take home yeah. message is essentially that the movement needs to be slow and it needs to be of a very high magnitude initially. And then if you want to talk about overall tendon changes, things like stiffness, then you need to start drilling in some very fast movements as well, once again, of high amplitude. So there's layers to it, but it it needs to be hard. It needs to be fast. It it is essential. Well, so it needs to be slow for more of the rehabilitation adaptation. And in order for the performance adaptation, there does need to be some very much speed associated with it. Yeah, I think that last part is often overlooked, and it's dependent too on like what your activities are. Um, so obviously, yeah. if you're like a runner, then and you're experiencing like patella or Achilles tendinopathy, there's going to need to be some kind of jumping plyometric training eventually. Yeah, with the introduction of variability, with hopefully RT is that variability for the population, um, and then I think in like our world a lot with barbell medicine is seeing people who are already heavily resistance training focused presenting with tendinopathic uh, symptom like presentations and then needing to go back to what Derek's saying is kind of heavy, heavier resistance, which is probably going to elicit that slow, but it's not so straightforward as like, just go hit top singles. You know, we're going to probably regulate. Sometimes it does mean more volume. Sometimes it means tempo stuff like that, but then also layering in variety for those folks. So if all we've ever been doing is SPD, maybe we get you doing split squats or uh, dumbbell bench press or something like that to change up the loading. Um, I, I can't recall if they go into this too much, but did they talk about risk of development of tendinopathy as it relates to this discussion? They had some data for the Achilles, uh, I believe. And, um, about like essentially like plantar flexion torque. So like how strong the calf muscle is and whether or not that predisposes you to Achilles tendinopathy. And there seemed to be some correlation, but I haven't dug into those studies specifically. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, I would say check out our podcast on tendinopathy. Previously, check out the future guide that's going to be coming out to kind of help 
folks work through tenopathy-based issues, and a lot of it is going to be uh, context-dependent as far as the population that we're talking about, whether it's endurance athletes or already resistance-focused training athletes. Um, and we'll try to give some pragmatic takeaways with that guide that you can enact uh, in your experience with that situation. And then, uh, you know, I think RT at this point uh, should be heavily advocated for in tenopathic situations. So having people do resistance training. And then if they're already resistance training primarily as their training modality, kind of getting into the weeds on how to uh, alter programming accordingly to help them through that process. Do you guys have anything else to add there? Nope. Sounds good to me. All right. Last one is muscle health. Um, and the kind of the big topics I talk about here is going to be strains, muscle strains, uh, falls as well, and then sarcopenia, obviously. So having uh, age-related uh, muscle quote unquote, loss or wasting, which I don't really like that word, uh, so to speak. Do you guys, what, what were your big takeaways from the muscle health section? Well, one of the big papers that always gets cited when we're talking about resistance training is the Lowerson uh, meta-analysis that showed that resistance or strength training does reduce the risk of injuries. But when you get into the nuance of that paper, what you find is a large portion of those uh, were related to hamstring muscle injuries in soccer or football players. And we have pretty good evidence. At this point, I would say there, there are very few things I'm willing to hang my hat on pretty hard. But it really does appear for muscle strains, especially in what's funny is that's even the wrong way because the vernacular is really starting to turn towards uh, muscle injuries just because strain is more the mechanism than the injury itself. Um, And there's good evidence for those lower extremity muscle injuries that things like Nordic hamstring curls, reverse Nordic curls, and even the Copenhagen adductor protocol do reduce the risk of those lower extremity muscle injuries. But once again, like the big thing there is if you perform them and there actually was a a big systematic review on the Nordics and what they found, like originally it's kind of a gross overarch recommendation is it didn't really work. And then there was a follow-up paper that said, well, if you look at the compliance rate and all the ones that had negative outcomes, it was crap. And then as soon as compliance started becoming a factor, then the benefit of it started rising a whole lot more. Yeah, I almost wrote up a barbell medicine article on the Larson et al. uh, paper a few years back when it first came out. I think it was like a year or two ago. And then I got into the weeds on the six citations that they have in there and quickly realized like these are pretty strong claims that I'm not sure we can completely make. But to the point that you're saying, I you know, I think we have sufficient data to say Nordic hamstring curls do a pretty good job at mitigating risk. It is one option uh, for mitigating risk for hamstring uh, strains or, to your point, injury. And then the same, we're having emerging evidence for the Copenhagen protocol for, for adductor uh, injuries. Uh, but I, I don't think, like, if you get into that paper, uh, there aren't many. There's, like, one of those six citations. That would be actually what I would call, like, a resistance training focus progressive overload program. Uh, which is unfortunate. We certainly need more uh, long-term perspective studies on intervening with resistance training focus and its effects on uh, injury risk within an incident rate within various populations. But to your point there, that really shows what is considered resistance training to a vast majority of the population. Because if you're not doing anything 
and we go to putting some Nordics in, yeah, that's, that's a big stimulus change. And I think you've seen once again, a, a big movement in the past 10 to 15 years to where strength training is being incorporated a lot more into, especially at the professional level and college level, um, into programs for just about every sport there is. Now, the quality of said program is always up for debate, but at this point, we don't have really good longitudinal data to say one is better than the other. So there's that. Motto, anything to add? No, I think like the conversation always comes back to like what's that person's baseline. So like what Derek was mentioning, like if they're already participating in resistance training, which is probably more rare, but um, maybe the Nordic won't, won't be enough, or maybe you need to actually modify the Nordic to make it like technically like overloading. Um, so I think a lot of these people probably just aren't, they have a lower baseline. So just simply adding something that's habitual to use like our previous term and overloaded that they're going to see that risk mitigation. Uh, but it really gets to know like who's the individual and what, what have they been doing what, and what aren't they doing. This is a really good point to talk about some of the female athlete things as well, just because we're still unfortunately dealing with this stigma of females shouldn't lift weights and particular to especially resistance training in the adolescent athletes, there, there is some good evidence in a study by O'Kane at all, where what they showed was a standard deviation increase in quadriceps strength, decreased the risk of injury in that cohort of athletes by 35%. So, you know, when we're talking about objective measurements of strength and showing an increase in it, we do have good evidence that having that increase does have an effect on the overall, like, protective mechanisms. And even to take it a step further, you know, if you start getting individuals stronger, it typically is a little bit easier with which to express power as well. So not only are we giving some protective benefits from just the strengthening side of it, odds are you're also developing some athletic prowess that you'll be able to express in the field. Mm-hmm. And that comes yeah. across in the fall risk research too. How like yeah, exactly not only does quad thinking. strength, like, mitigate fall risk but like rate of force development so like how quickly can you contract to maximal force there was a really good paper was it uh wang w-a-n-g et al i want to say like Mm -hmm. 2017 that looked at uh you know why is resistance training matter in this regard as far as like rate of force development if you're obviously having uh sarcopenia ongoing you're having loss of muscle mass your rate of force development is going to go down you need muscle to generate force, which could put you at a risk of like not being able to withstand a fancy word perturbation, meaning you're just thrown off balance from an external force. You don't develop force fast enough to react to that. Um, So that goes back to, you know, if we can have folks that um, do this stuff throughout life, maybe we can mitigate the development of osteoporosis and sarcopenia. And then furthermore, you're able to be more resilient in your daily activities in life. So if you do have this external force that acts against you, you can resist it. And maybe even if you do fall, that's less likely that you're going to have a fracture occur out of it, which could lead to a lot of other health issues down the road, uh, depending on your age. So I think these are great points and just more of us further advocating. I know I'm repeating myself a lot, uh, but we've got to figure out a way to get people to do this stuff throughout life, which leads into our last part of this discussion before we get to our Q&A, which is practical application 
for getting folks to engage in physical activity, but more specifically for our context, resistance training. I just want to read you guys a quote from here that I thought the authors did really well with. But kind of the first major point that Amato was touching on earlier is we need to individualize the process and our recommendations. And so the authors say this process allows a more complete understanding of the person, his, her past and current exposure to loading activities, quality of life, beliefs and attitudes towards exercise, relevant impairment and mobility, potential site of loading, adequate skeletal muscle trophism, and or isolated strength deficits that may impair rapid exposure to high load exercises, thus requiring a period of familiarization and anatomical adaptation via adoption of different loading schemes. In other words, we need to talk to the human in front of us, figure out what they've been doing previously. Uh, how does that compare to the goals they're kind of trying to acquire? And then how do we collaboratively di- uh, design a game plan to move them forward? And I think a really important point to what Derek was saying about kind of the stigmas of resistance training for various populations, like uh, for females, is addressing any potential misinformation that's been spread is about, you know, false beliefs as it relates to engaging in resistance training. What do you guys think are like the big uh, either fears or false beliefs, so to speak, that come out of this discussion with folks? I think a lot of it just comes from like the unknown. Like so many people just haven't participated in these activities over a long period of time. And if they ever have, maybe it was like for a very brief moment earlier in their life and they didn't have like the best like instruction and structure. So I I don't, you know, it's hard to say like there's like a common disbelief. You know, there are some that pop up in terms of like, oh, I don't want to hurt myself or I don't want to get too much muscle or, you know, like, you know, that's not for me. Like I'm not like a bodybuilder. But, you know, that comes down to someone's, like, background and culture. But I think, I think so much of it is just, like, non-exposure. And I, you know, I talk about this sometimes um, in terms of, like, our clinic set up here at Boston PT and Wellness. But, like, as soon as they walk in, you know, they're, if we're doing the evaluation up front or even if we're doing, like, the evaluation in our private room, they have to see the gym and you know, pre-COVID, they would see a lot of people doing various things of all shapes and sizes and age ranges. So it makes it more, like, almost normal. So I think a lot of it is, like, non-exposure in terms of, like, what I see on a day-to-day basis. Because a lot of resistance training just happens, like, in these, like, gyms in the corner where it's just, like, you know, the same type of people kind of doing the same stuff. When a lot of the stigma comes down to just even how resistance training is projected out into the world, because, you know, to your average adolescent athlete, you can't have less than 135 pounds on a barbell because that's the least they've ever seen. And no one's out putting up their videos of their empty bar squats or, you know, learning the technique out of it. And then even worse, you know, you'll have an athlete squat and they may have a little bit of a butt wink at the bottom. And all of a sudden everyone on the internet decides they needs to comment that something nefarious is going to happen to them. And it's not, it's not a great supportive system in, in a lot of the ways we do it just because we have this very tight window for expectation on like how things should look. And that's not it shouldn't be the case at all because we all have to learn and we all have to start somewhere. And 
I think that was actually one of the most enjoyable parts of, of really working consistently with adolescent athletes is a lot of them like really had no idea what strong was or how strong they could be. And we're perfectly comfortable coming in starting with a goblet squat and progressing to a barbell and, and then starting to put some weight on the bar. And it, it is building that confidence in people. And a lot of times I, I think there's just such a gap in the expectation of where people should be and where they actually are that we can't really get across it. And, and it's, you know, the, the analogy here would be like, well, if, if you want to be a millionaire, but you're too scared to start investing because you're worried what's going to happen to your money. And, and there has to be some investment of time and resources in order to start making those progressions out of it. And it's got to start small. And, you know, Mike, you and I were talking yesterday about the, the linear versus the exponential benefits of resistance training. And yeah. it really is additive the more you do it. And when you first start, there is going to be some initial like great benefits, but the more consistent you are with it, the more consistent you are with physical activity, like we're, we're talking compounding interest here. Like things start adding up and not only from just a straight physiological standpoint, with the adaptations we talked about regarding cartilage, bone, muscle, and tendon, but with a lot of the mental aspects as well. There is something to be said about gaining that confidence of, hey, I can go do that task. I can go pick up that, you know, pick some arbitrary thing. And we talk about, especially older individuals losing their independence. Well, if you want to be more independent, it's pretty good to have confidence that you can carry your entire groceries in and it's not going to be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. I think all of these are, are great points, you know? Um, and I think that's part of our job as like facilitators in, in this process of getting people being physically active. And then more importantly for what we're talking about, uh, resistance training. So addressing these thoughts and beliefs, perhaps some misinformation, st some stigmas, you know, I think about, um, my mother-in-law a little bit in this conversation because, we were talking about you know, like remaining function and independence and, and reducing um, osteoporosis issues. And, you know, it's like, hey, we really need to start getting you resistance training. And even at that point in life, you know, I think there's a bit of a, a generational gap there in which, you know, from that time period where she is more familiar with, it wasn't a common thing for her to engage in resistance training. So addressing, you know, meeting where she's at, going through those conversations and addressing any fears or concerns and then, you know, providing a, a kind of a game plan of how to progress through this and get you physically active and doing resistance training is very helpful. And then while doing that, we're not creating unnecessary barriers as entry points to activity. So what Derek was saying, you know, oh, I noticed a little bit of a butt wink or some flexion in your spine while picking that up. We don't want to constrain them so much that they can't advance at the task, because as we've repeatedly talked about load tends to matter. The dosage of resistance training matters, especially over time and in, in incorporating progressive overload. Um, so there's a lot there. We could easily do an entire podcast just simply on, you know, addressing some of these false beliefs and, and concerns that are unnecessary as it relates to resistance training. Is there anything you guys want to add there to individualizing the program? I think we've covered it. So the next thing is just looking at uh, goal-based progressions, goal-based progressions. So having uh, phases in this process is good. Um, and the big thing would be, so somewhat Derek was touching on with like a goblet squat to a, a barbell squat would be a, a familiarization phase, which in essence just says like, we're not trying to one rep max you. 
um, or even three rep or five rep max you, we're just looking for you to introduce a movement, kind of learn the movement pattern, learn the task demands, and then go through that process of kind of uh, what often people talk about in this regard is neuromuscular learning and having some, you know, a phase dedicated to that. But then if we are individualizing our program and I talk to you and you've been resistance training, then obviously that familiarization uh, phase is going to change. What were you guys' big take home points from this discussion with film familiarization phase? Yeah, I think about it as like a like almost like a skill introduction. Um, it's like getting familiar with the movements and making it non-threatening in a way like the, the loads or even if you're just doing body weight movements that are um, like just very doable in terms of their capacity and where they're starting. So making sure that you can scale it down enough and uh, and that they actually see and feel themselves like improving in the skill area. You know, they need less cueing or they need less instruction um, just to get comfortable with those kind of movement patterns. And I think there you, you raise a great point about not overcoaching. And if you want someone to be familiar, like they're or become familiar with something, they need to be exposed to it and not have this perfectionist belief of, of what their technique should look like or what weight they should have on the bar, especially in this kind of on-ramp phase as you're learning what to do. Like your error rate for technique is going to be higher. That's fine. That's mm-hmm. why we're not trying to crank through this, just add five pounds every week. It's okay to take some time to learn the technique and get more comfortable with your doing or with what you're doing. If this is going to be something you're going to be participating in for a long time, we don't need to rush some real fast progression to try and get as much weight on the bar to where, you know, it, you're just frustrated that you're not making any progress and, your technique at that point is really deviated from what anyone would call ideal. Yeah, I've had this conversation, and I know uh, Derek, you and I talked about this, I think a week ago, but the conversation I find myself having a lot lately is people's why for engaging in resistance training, because I think there's oftentimes, at least in our little bubble at Barbell Medicine, there's a strong buy-in that progress equals how much weight did I go up with for whatever reason. And then they don't make that progress and they get frustrated with the process or they're dealing with symptoms and they're frustrated with that part of the process. And it's like, we really need to return to why are we engaging in resistance training? And, you know, our kind of strong belief is for all the positive benefits you get out of it, not just the physiological stuff we're talking about, but the other stuff Derek was talking about with mental health can also build a social network, especially pre-COVID-19, like forming bonds with folks who engage in resistance training with you. It's one of the reasons I think CrossFit did so well for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, but going back to like, why am I engaging this activity? And if we want long-term adherence, you need to really figure out, is this an enjoyable process that I'm engaging in and getting the positive benefits that are moving me towards my goals? Or am I completely just constantly getting frustrated in this process and and dealing with symptoms? Maybe even probably need to spend some self-reflective time on, on identifying our why. Yeah. And I was just having this conversation with a client, uh, last night and like, reinforcing that it's perfectly normal and fine to have like objective goals and like, you know, improving uh, certain things that you can measure, but that like, you're not going to see that actually in the very short term. And if you do, it's, you know, going to be up and down, but like that the short term 
um, kind of effort and adherence and process of it ends up like leading itself to those long-term changes, but there's no way of like making those five, 10, 15, 20 year improvements without actually like sticking to the process and enjoying it and having like structure and guidance. Yeah. I think this goes back towards, um, what Derek was saying with perfectionism, as far as what you were saying, a motto with it's okay to have these objectifiable goals, um, whatever they are, if it's weight on the bar, or trying to attain a particular weight in the squat or the deadlift or the bench, but not overweighting that to the point of perfectionism. And that's all that matters. Like, you know, enjoying the process is actually something that's really important here. Um, and so I think it's, a, you know, key to us kind of reframing that discussion with folks. And I think this also uh, gets at, uh, some of the fears and beliefs that we were just talking about previously, like we don't need folks in the gym doing resistance training focused programs, you know, five and six days a week. That's, that's, that's going to be a big barrier. If your thought is the only way I'm going to reap benefits from resistance training is I have to go in and do this very specific program five days a week. And I really don't want to do that. Then you're, you're probably not going to adhere long-term and we actually don't need you to do that. I'm not even aware of, uh, and obviously feel free to correct me if I'm wrong guys, I'm not aware of any evidence that says, oh, I suddenly deadlifted 400 pounds instead of 300 pounds. And suddenly all these new health benefits have been bestowed upon me. I, I think a 315 bench does um, make you live up to 100. <laughs> I, I mean, we laugh at this, but it's I, I know I've had people that think that, like quite literally think like I've got to achieve this number for whatever reason. And I'm like, you know, there's not you're already exceeding like what we need you to be doing, which is awesome. I'm fine with that. That's good. Especially if you enjoy it, but why are we waiting this objective measurement so much? It doesn't infer upon you other than the meaning you've assigned to it. You're not going to get anything extra out of that. Yeah. And I, this is, this is kind of going off topic, but I'll use myself as, a, as an example because it just happened recently, but I started running in January, like very sporadically. And then with, the start of COVID, I was like, oh, it's something I could probably pursue a little bit more because I'm not going to have less access to gym equipment. And, um, and I was primarily doing it to change uh, blood pressure, actually. Um, so I was like, I think I'll enjoy running more than like other forms of uh, aerobic activity. And I was like missing the mark on aerobic activity by a, like a landslide uh, for a few years. And recently I started to develop some Achilles tendon symptoms. And I was kind of like obsessed with, you know, I was doing it in a slow, progressive way, but I was like, I want to make sure like I can increase mileage, you know, every so often and get to some, you know, marker of like, I want to be able to run 30 miles a week. And then I'm like, all right, now that I'm having these tendon symptoms, I have to remind myself, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? And I was like, I can be perfectly okay this week of like, kicking back into some walking and doing some biking and like do the calf work that I've been skipping and, you know, like actually reframe what I'm doing. And I still have those goals of like, maybe I do still want to like increase my weekly mileage, but I'll get there eventually. And when I get there, it'll still be worth it. But for right now, I just need to like modify this a bit. because I have to remind myself like what I'm doing, what I'm doing, why I'm doing what I'm doing. So it's okay to have like these competing ideas of like, I want to increase performance and have this objective measurement increase. But at the same time, like remind myself like I'm doing it because I like it and I don't want to burn out. And I still can get the same effect if I modify it a bit. So that's all. That's my story. <laughs> <laughs> that was, no, that's good. 
Yeah. I think it's just like human to like have those competing ideas and to struggle with it a bit, but having at least some knowledge and guidance that you can navigate these, um, these, uh, difficult situations. Yeah. I think there, there's certainly something to be said for doing just different things for the sake of doing it. It's, you know, we've all dealt with our own injuries in, especially working on the rehab team. I think what we run into a lot of times is this, I, I need to get back to whatever I was doing or what could even be more problematic is comparing yourself on that day to what you were doing. And there is something to be said for, let's go do something else for a little while and then come back to this. And that something else may be a, a different exercise for the resistance training side of it. A motto to your point, it may be running. Like I I've been sitting on the airdyne watching hockey and just accumulating load over the past few weeks because it's playoff time and it's all low level stuff. But I mean, it's better than me sitting on a couch doing it. And I kind of like it that way because I'm sure my uh, RPM goes up a little bit whenever the lightning score. Hmm. If I would have tried to watch a six and a half hour game one, the other night on the airdyne, I probably would have hit my caloric goals for the week. Yeah, there's a lot here. I hope people kind of go back through this and listen to this a few times. But we think it's great that people are engaging in resistance training. But I think you just need to spend time reflecting on why, especially if you're going through a more frustrating period and realize it's okay to do variety and it's okay to look at other avenues of physical activity as well as with resistance training. So just kind of our brief side discussion on that topic. I liked that the authors laid out a very specific, uh, well, somewhat specific programming recommendation as it relates to this discussion. This is table two out of the article, and it's just kind of their suggested recommendation. And they, they give a program specific to load percentages, and then they also give a program specific to autoregulation, which our bias is uh, autoregulation and then, as necessary, combination of load percentages. Um, but what what was uh, your guys' thoughts about this table and what were your big take-homes from it? I mean, if you're familiar with um, some of our templates and programming, it kind of aligns well with what we uh, advocate for. You know, you can go if as you start accumulating load and learning the skills of the movements, um, you're going to have to start prescribing actual intensity and volume. So a lot of this stuff is having a variety of higher intensity work and you can essentially rate that in terms of a percent of what your one rep max is, but many people just don't know what the number is, nor is it appropriate because it's a kind of a moving target, um, especially if you're new to resistance training. So a lot of it is what I would probably advocate for is the auto regulation. So using a rate of perceived exertion and then trying to drive um, that number ever so slightly up over time to kind of get a true representation of like what a seven feels like, what an eight out of 10 feels like, what a nine out of 10 feels like. And then the authors just kind of go through like what we would consider kind of classic strength training. So like three to five sets of one to six reps of RPE eight to 10 with a three to five minute rest break in between exercises um and there's obviously a lot of nuance to that 
And if you really get into the weeds of like what induces strength improvement, there's more variability than than this paper alludes to. But for a basic start, I think that's kind of perfect. And it's a lot of what we do in the clinic. Yeah, with that frequency of two to three times a week, you know, I've had a couple of discussions with various people over the years about this topic. And uh, especially for people who are are completely new to resistance training, I'm, I'm perfectly okay with a fairly generic, like, here, go run this style template. And then as you adapt and learn those specific movements for your goals, then we can really get into the nuance of individualizing programming to you and your goals. But I'm perfectly fine with saying, hey, you know, we need, we just need to get you resistance training for positive benefits at two times a week. Maybe that's what you have time for. And we're going to focus on multi-jointed exercises. We want to maximize uh, loading and progressive overload with, with higher intensities down the road. So those, I want you to learn, you know, squat, bench press, deadlift, overhead press, or something you can even use machines would be perfectly fine. Leg press, shoulder overhead press with a selectorized machine. I don't, I don't really care. Uh, but then we can overload those over time. And then perhaps maybe your goals morph a little bit and you want to work on something that requires specific skill learning. Like, let's say you want to transition to weightlifting or something and clean and jerk and snatch. Like, I think you can begin, and I'm curious to you guys' thoughts. I think you can begin with a fairly like generic template for most folks and then individualize as time goes on. I would agree with that. I mean, that's essentially what the long-term athletic development model and most, most education systems for that matter would advocate is start off with a more generalist approach and then become specialized as interests change and you've developed a foundation. And what we'd really see with a lot of resistance training research is even from a performance or a rehabilitation standpoint, like the strength side of it tends to be the foundation for the development of a lot of athletic traits and a lot of the risk reduction sides of things. Yeah. Amato, any thoughts to that? No, it makes sense. I mean, I I go back to a lot of like my, beginning kind of learning in in these areas and i always think of like someone like dan john and just kind of like Mm -hmm. mastering the basics of like getting people to understand like squat a hinge push pull and like understanding what hard feels like and what moderate feels like and then as you progress you are gonna you're gonna find like your niches and what you really like and then you can specialize a little bit more just like derek was saying with the long-term athletic development model but like you know like I just started training my mom through True Coach because she can't, she doesn't have access to like her gym classes anymore. So she's like used to a certain style of exercising, and so now I'm like, well, if you want to, she approached me and was like, I want to get stronger, and so I was like, well, it's gonna look a little different than your classes, and she was like, I'm perfectly fine with that. So it's like she has a base of like moving, but then she's learning like the skills of like training, and you know we started talking about RPE like week two. So these aren't like very complicated concepts that you need to like hide from people until like, you know, they're a year into training. You can start early and get them to familiarize themselves and they'll be hopefully something we like talk about, like talk about a lot is like self-efficacious and be able to kind of take this on their own. And like, you know, when you're not there, they can do this stuff for a long time. Even something as simple as like, how did that feel? Like it, it doesn't inherently need to have this like numeric assignment to everything in the beginning phases. Okay. That felt good. 
Oh, was it easy? Yeah, I felt pretty easy. Okay, well, let's put a little bit more on. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've all had those athletes that you ask them an RPE number and their answer isn't a number. It's, that felt about right. And oh, yeah. like that, yeah, especially in the beginning phases, about right is perfectly fine. Well, I think to that point too, on the opposite of the spectrum, a lot of people uh, have perfectionistic tendencies as it relates to this this idea of RPE or IR. They're like, I've got to have this perfect rating. I'm like, you're kind of missing the whole point of this, which is just adjusting loading on that given day based on any number of factors of, you know, influencing how you feel. Um, so, yeah, I think this is good. I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't plug Barbell Medicine a little bit. We obviously have a beginner's prescription template out there for purchase on our website, barbellmedicine.com. Uh, I've looked through it. I've had a, a several people I've ran through with it, and I think it's a great option as like, an introduction template to getting people to do resist, resistance training. So, yeah, take that for what it is. I'm obviously biased. So. Do you guys have anything else? I think this is a good point to lead into the Q and A and then and kind of wrap things up. Yeah, yeah. Let's quick fire these Q and As. All right. So the first one: Are there sports situations where it doesn't confer injury risk reduction? I think they're saying, are there situations in which resistance training as it relates to sport engagement, it doesn't actually confer injury risk reduction? Uh, I'll answer first on this one. I would say that, uh, like we were saying earlier, there's some nuance to this idea of resistance training as an injury risk reduction tool. Uh, I think we have some data for some situations in some contexts. Yeah, because you're going to have to get into specific sports and specific injuries. But, you know, I, I could... It could be as wide ranging as reducing risk for performance artists to, you know, what people think is classic, like basketball, football, soccer stuff. Yeah. I mean, and, and in I would... situations where it doesn't confer, like, yeah, don't want RM somebody every workout. That's not going to reduce their injury risk reduction. There's a situation. Uh, it's <laughs> like, it, it's the the question you know to your point or to the barbell medicine phrase there's nuance to it and yeah. if if it really ultimately always conferred injury risk reduction then we wouldn't see any injuries in powerlifting so yeah. there obviously are situations that uh, there are modifiable variables that we really need to be mindful of yeah and something's just like out of our control in this realm of injury risk reduction, right? Like I saw on your story today, Derek, you were going over um, on Instagram, the the smoking of the pork shoulder, and you like put up a picture of the rain that was about to ensue. And like, there's just going to be obviously things we can't control. And so we only have the data on here, the things we can try to influence and these related variables as it relates to injuries, how we're defining that. And then there's always going to be things that are just simply out of our control. Pork still turned out great. Hey, man, it looked excellent. I'm jealous. It's all about um, that egg. What's that? It's all about that egg. Yeah, I know. I, I need one. <laughs> so I don't think we have much to add to number one. But next question was limitations of resistance training. I'm not really sure where that was going, but maybe you guys have some thoughts to that. Only in your mind. Right. Uh, don't, don't skip your aerobic. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. It. yeah. 
That's interesting to me because uh, obviously we've been advocating for RT this whole time, but don't forget about all the other recommendations as it relates to cardiorespiratory training. Just because you RT, there are still going to be some benefits that you're going to reap from doing cardiorespiratory training as well on a weekly basis. Doesn't that mean just program sets over five, Mike? Yes. <laughs> Add five and then sets of six. <laughs> Um, what are your thoughts on the mindset of, oh, this is a good one, actually. What are your thoughts on the mindset of you shouldn't load if the patient doesn't have full range of motion? <clears throat> You're never going to get anywhere with that approach. It's dogmatic, unsubstantiated in the literature. And it is certainly something we need to work on, on reestablishing full range of motion. But, you know, there's some studies where you look at uh, individuals going through range of motion seven years after an ACL and they're not squatting as deep as their non-surgical peers. Well, if that's the case, do I need to wait eight years before we really start loading them? And I, I think there has to be a balance struck between working on things like range of motion and working on overall technique and loading principles. And as soon as you go into just one of any of those facets, if you only work on range of motion, cool, there's never been any external force really driven through the system. If you only work technique, great. You, you have somebody who's very good within this very narrow window of proficiency. And if you only just add five pounds, you probably have someone with a really crappy looking whatever movement we're going to talk about. And odds are they've slammed into a ceiling on their own progress before you know it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll use loading a lot too, with even in cases like where there's actual restricted range of motion just to help improve like comfort function, confidence. Like there's, you know, if there's zero to 30 degrees of available range of motion, then there's zero to 30 degrees of available like active or resisted range of motion, depending on how you, uh, design the exercise, but there's still stuff. And even to do then, and, yeah. you know, if, if we don't go after what is full range of motion for a moment, we're screwed yeah. too, because, you know, saying. there's these camps of like, well, you're restricted in ankle dorsiflexion. No, you're not, man. Like it, yeah. odds are <laughs> if you're, dorsiflexion is perfectly fine. And even when we start talking about like range of motion assessments, when, so the fancy tool that we use to measure range of motion is either an inclinometer or a goniometer. When you look at the error of measurement on either of those devices, you're talking five degrees most of the time. So if, if that's the case, then like, cool, I gave you five degrees on the goniometer, or I could have just measured a little bit different this time. So like yeah. it, it's, and when you're talking about something like dorsiflexion where normal range of motion, quote unquote, is considered like 20 degrees, where you're talking 25% of the total range of motion, you could be uh, missing out there. But then like if someone really wants to go into this full range side, I, I really challenge you to go get six different textbooks and look at what the range of motion for normal is yeah. listed as for things like hip internal rotation or ankle dorsiflexion. And you're going to see a much bigger window than what you think. Yeah. And that's where my mind went with this conversation. Uh, I'm assuming when they say patient, like we're supposed to assume that they're dealing with some type of symptoms or maybe post-operative situations. But I also think about like uh, when I went to gym and like teaching some people just have never squatted with an external load 
you know, and I'm not, when I did uh, quote unquote assessments, which I hate that word in this context, it was like, Hey, have you ever squatted? Nope. Never done it. Cool. Probably not going to put you under a barbell immediately and say, you know, try to squat ass to grass. I might say, Hey, can I see you attempt to do a sit to stand? And they're like, yep, can do that. Awesome. Can you try to do an air squat? Uh, yep, can do that. And let's set some arbitrary standard of hips below knees because whatever. Yep, you're able to do that. Cool, let's goblet squat you. All right, let's barbell back squat you. But if you struggled to get to that position, that arbitrary hips below knees, um, and maybe staying balanced, it's not necessarily because you're lacking range somewhere. It could simply be because you've never done the movement that I'm asking you to do. And we need to spend some time giving you the opportunity to learn how to do that movement. I don't need to be over there trying to see, can you get your knee to the wall? Because somebody told me that's what I'm supposed to do is check ankle dorsiflexion. So that's my rant on that. Do you guys have anything to add? No. Nope. Uh, is being strong protective against injuries or the act of participating in training? False dichotomy, both. Yeah, I would say both. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't have anything to Yeah, the process of doing it is protective, but then the, we do have some like research to say like certain certain benchmarks might be more protective against certain injuries. All right. Uh, this next one, I really hope I was just being trolled, but does programming matter in rehab? Yes. Yes. I don't know what, I mean, if you're, if, yeah, yes, it matters uh, a great deal. Hopefully you're individualizing your physical activity recommendations and progressing them accordingly. If not, yeah. uh, we will help you. We're, we're happy to do that. Yeah, I, I think I'm biased on this one. Like e even more so than maybe I don't. I'm not sure what the person who was getting at with this, but I think that could be a very big area of improvement in education and like at least like the orthopedic rehab world. But not even orthopedics, even across multiple um, fields and, and subspecialties. You know, all the way down to like acute care in hospitals, um, like how to get someone to adapt and progress so that they can move to the next stage of their rehab. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, soon enough, we will have a certification. We will be happy to help folks with that. Cause I do agree. It's a major area that's lacking, especially in the pain and rehab world. All right. Is it more important in a specific injury, i.e. tendinopathy versus non-specific pain, it being resistance training? Um, and so I'll, I kind of wanted to specifically talk about this one, so I'll kick this off. It, for tendinopathy, we've already discussed that in prior podcasts and then briefly today. Yes, there is a very, uh, there's very good evidence for the role of resistance training in situations as we're giving the umbrella label of tendinopathy. But I think it should be um, explicitly stated in regards uh, to the context of pain. We're solely talking about someone's experiencing something that they would label as pain. Uh, the evidence isn't great for uh, mode of activity or dosage of activity. Uh, we've talked about this previously uh, on numerous occasions. And so what I wouldn't want to see people saying to others is, you are just experiencing pain because you're weak or you need to go do X exercise or X movement to quote unquote, get yourself out of pain. We do not have supportive data to make those claims. Yeah, I think of resistance training as a mode 
in the general sense of getting someone to move towards their goals and functional status. But I don't see it as like an obliterator of pain. <laughs> and it's, and that's a very, I'm looking at it very general in that way. And then you can get into more specifics like tendinopathy where we have more research to say X, Y, and Z, but um, there's, there's definitely no blanket statement of like resistance training needs to be progressive to, you know, treat all pains and aches and pains. So what you're saying is if I have low back pain, I don't need to just gain weight and deadlift more weight. Four or five by five, uh, you know, very similar to the 315 bench. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, and it's variable. Like I I think about my own kind of like, you know, we could draw on on our own experiences, but there's times in my life where I was training heavy and felt great. There are times in my life when I was training heavy and didn't feel great. There's times in my life where I was like, you know, I didn't have access to heavy weights. And, you know, I just think like symptoms and pain is so much more fluctuating than just like what you're touching in terms of loading. As soon as symptoms are involved, you can't reduce it to just one modality. And, and that's kind of the, the long and short of it. And, you know, it, you have to be able to meet the individual where they're at. Um, I think it is a fine modality for the, for a large swath of injuries. But as far as being more important, uh, if, I, if I'm going to be charitable, I would say in post-operative instances where we have good evidence for limb symmetry indexes and in muscle injuries, I would argue it is important because it seems to have a very protective effect with return to sport and risk of re-injury. But otherwise, like that, that's a little bit too reduced down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah what I, I've seen on the internet uh, lately is this weird idea of like everybody must resistance train for pain related issues. Uh, I'm not really even sure like where this is coming from. Um, I would obviously want folks to resistance train because we have all of these positive health benefits out of it, um, as we've seen in the data, but not simply because like we've got to get you out of pain. So you must resistance train. So. Yeah. I think this speaks to the entirety of the conversation. So they have like the point of highlighting resistance training is that it, it, it can be a very like important tool in the rehab process and in the risk mitigation and conversation, but then it has all these far reaching effects health wise. So if I'm going to place my bets on something where I'm going to invest a lot of resources and time into learning like a training or a rehab tool, like I'm going to pull a lot of it into RT because of how widespread and far reaching it is. Yeah. All right. I think that knocks out all of the questions. So kind of three big takeaways from this podcast today, in case you've made it all the way here and you're wondering what our driving home messages are. First, resistance training is extremely important throughout the lifespan. It's something we hope you engage in from child adolescence all the way through uh, all of life for a lot of positive health benefits, not just siloed to musculoskeletal quote unquote health. Uh, we do have evidence that resistance training is going to be helpful in clinical contexts, such as addressing the umbrella term osteoarthritis for bone-related issues as far as osteopenia, osteoporosis, and fractures. 
tendon for tendinopathy related issues, and then for muscles for strains, sarcopenia, uh, rate of force development as it relates to falls. So a lot of positive clinical context in regards to musculoskeletal system, as well as taking that all the way up to the individual level like we've been talking about. And then the final takeaway is we need to be individualizing our plan. But if you're listening to this uh, as someone who hasn't started resistance training yet and you're realizing like, oh, this is something important I need to be doing, um, I think you're perfectly fine to go out and start a template, uh, it, maybe even our template with the beginner's prescription and start engaging in a very generic resistance training uh, template two to three times a week, preferably a focus on uh, rate of perceived exertion with auto-regulation and doing something like multi-jointed exercises and then progressing it over time and individualizing the plan. Obviously, if you need help with this process, whether you're dealing with symptoms as it relates to physical activity, we'd be happy to consult with you. We also have an entire coaching department where folks would be happy to have a conversation about where you're at in this process of physical activity, whether you've introduced resistance training or not, and you just need some guidance on it. And that way they can kind of figure out what your prior physical activity is, uh, where you're currently at, what your goals are, and how to help you move towards those goals. And you can find all that information at barbellmedicine.com. I just want to say thanks for joining in on this conversation. It's something we're all passionate about, and I hope that it's been useful for you. Until next time, I'm Dr. Michael Ray, joined by Dr. Michael Amato and Dr. Derek Miles. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.